0: All right, we are in the Gospel of Matthew and we're doing this a little different in that we're going through sections of it, uh, what uh, is sometimes called pericopes, uh, the little sections that are used. Uh, and then uh, we're, I'm discussing it briefly and then we're closing the recording so that we can talk uh, together. I've already heard back from some people that listen on... Um, Online that they wish they had access to the conversation, but we one can't record it because we can't uh, we don't have the microphone system for that and secondly I don't want you to feel like uh, whatever you say gets uh, uh, plastered all over so we'll continue to do it that way uh, this first section that we've done uh, up through chapter four really is Matthew giving us the uh, coming of Jesus his identification with Israel. And so at chapter 5, we're beginning to get uh, the teachings of the Master. In uh, chapter 4, verse 25, it says, "...Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis." Galilee is the area around the Sea of Galilee, and the Decapolis is the uh, area across the Sea of Galilee there. And then Jerusalem and Judea, that's the southern area, and beyond the Jordan, so the area that today is called Jordan, is is what happened is the Lord's um, reputation, because of the healings and his teachings, began to draw crowds. Uh, I would imagine that the healings were drawing the crowds more than the teaching, Uh, that seems to be the pattern in in the text itself. So today we're going to start with chapter five. We're we're looking at five, six, and seven, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now I believe that Jesus taught this message uh, and much of this material from synagogue to synagogue as he taught. Um, I'm sure he also talked about the portion of the Torah uh, that they were reading and the half Torah as we see uh, him doing in the Gospels. But we have this text also in the Gospel of Luke in a different setting. And if you know anything about teaching, people don't teach something once and then leave it out. Uh, You repeat it and you teach it to new people. So I think what Matthew is giving us here is a foundational sense of the teachings of Jesus. Now that's important because as I have complained often... Many Christians are actually Paulines. That is, they follow Paul as he follows Christ, but they know Paul's writings and they know Paul's words much more than they know the actual teachings of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. Uh, part of that is uh, we tend to read things that are easier for us and Paul's writings make more sense to us. But... Uh, Jesus' words often are difficult in part because he's not speaking directly to Gentiles. He's speaking to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and his 12 disciples who will be his witness and he is focused on that ministry and he will, from time to time when he is being pulled away from that, mention that that is why he came. The scripture says, and this is Paul talking, that when the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Talking about Israel. So when we look at this text, uh, where people have gathered, um, this is not a bunch of Americans and French and Japanese showing up to, to hear Jesus. It is actually... The remnant of Israel that had come back after the Babylonian captivity along with some who never actually left. And so that's, that's the context here. Jesus as, a, uh, as one sent to Israel is speaking to his people. So we begin at chapter 5 verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. Uh, Now, his disciples came to him. Does not mean that only the twelve. There is a group of people who are following. That's why Matthew tells us that. The twelve will be there. But he is going to talk to anyone who is following him. Who believes that he has something to say. And so, uh, he opens his mouth. And began to teach them, saying, and we hit what are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I'm going to stop there. Uh, we won't stop the tape yet. I want to make some comments on this. Uh, there are a lot of commentaries that try to identify what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving the blessings and in Luke he gives the cur- the curses. Uh, there is a way of life and a way of death. Israel is given that, and they are they are being told that if they are seeking those things of life, that they will enter the kingdom, and that they will uh, have the blessings of the kingdom. In the Luke passage, he also talks about those who are cursed. And so, we have just a portion of it here in these verses. The ones I want us to particularly look at is... That uh, those who are poor in spirit, and those who mourn, and those who are gentle, and those who hunger for righteousness, and those who are merciful, and those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers, are clearly those who are trying to follow the will of the Lord as given in the covenants and are seeking kingdom type uh, reality in their lives. They are the ones who are going to be persecuted. And so those who have been persecuted for the sake uh, of righteousness will receive the kingdom because suffering is part of that entrance into the kingdom. And he adds to that in, in verse 11 that blessed are you when you are persecuted and treated evil because of me. So again, there is trying to live the way God tells us can bring about Uh, persecution, but also the testimony of Jesus can bring persecution. And we live in a country and a culture where that has been minimal, if at all. But that is not true around the world. And it may not uh, be uh, long true here in this context. So, uh, one thing I want to mention, and we'll open it up for any comments that you have a lot of commentaries take this word blessed and say, happy is the man who does this. And I think that's an appropriate translation. If you think of it as we hear it in the Old Testament, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. In other words, these are. this is not about fun and games. It's not about being giddy. It's about the blessings and the happiness the joy of the Lord that is ours when we know we are doing the right thing. And so while I would not translate it happy because I think that we use the word happy in too light a way now, uh, that is an appropriate uh, part of this notion. So we're going we're gonna to cut off the uh, tape here or stop it for a second. And if there are any comments you want to make or questions you want to... Now this next section is important. Um, chapter 5, verse 13. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to Christians. He's talking to his disciples within Israel. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I want you to notice that that statement is made right after he tells them about their suffering. If you, if you let your suffering cause you to, to lose your flavor in the aspect of the preservative, and that's really the idea of the salt here, is the idea of preserving, uh, then there's no, there's no value. Then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill... Cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to stop it at that one, but I want to say some. Don't stop the tape yet. Sorry. Um, these two things, salt and light are what Israel is supposed to be. Israel is to be a preservative because they have a priestly call for the nations and they are a light to the Gentiles. They're a light to the nations. So Jesus is talking to these Jews who know the way of life because of the covenant and he's telling them that they need to live that even if, if they're persecuted for it because their task as Israel is to be a preservative of the, uh, of the kingdom of God in the earth when the earth is not very kingdom of God like and they are to be a light. But they're supposed to do this out in the open. So he says the light is not put under a basket. It's put up So that it will light the whole house. And so that's important. So then he tells them, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. That is, you're obeying the kingdom commandments. And they will glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because they're doing it because God has commanded it. Not because they're great people. In other words, it's clear that they're obeying what God has said. God had told Israel in the Torah, when you do this, when you obey these commandments, the people around you will see them and say, what God, what people have such a God who is this wise and has this great understanding, right? Right? So the idea is that they are to live these kingdom purposes because ultimately they're a manifestation of God to the Gentiles. Now, you have mostly heard these verses applied to us as Christians. And I think they do in a secondary sense apply to us. But in our case, we're not the light to the to the world in that sense as we are A testimony of who Jesus is to the Gentile. We're examples, if you will, of those who have seen that light and now are reflecting that light. So I think that we can apply these verses to ourselves, but they have their first and most straight application to Israel as a light to the nations and as a preserver, as Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And so, I think that's why he's going to immediately jump into the issue of the Torah and the prophets in that sense. So, we're going to stop the... the in uh, verse 17 then, he says, So let your... verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your mitzvahs, see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. And stop thinking, this is an imperative, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that verse 20 is a pivot verse between what he has just said and what he's about to say. So I'm going to repeat that. You'll notice I keep repeating the last uh, verse. And it's because we need to see this as a whole. I'm hoping that over the next couple of weeks, you'll read this entire three chapters over and over. And you begin to see the flow that is here. It's woven together to give an impact beyond just just the words. So he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Now, In Judaism, there is an idea regarding commandments. A person who uh, kind of sidesteps the commandment is said to be annulling it. He's kind of making it of no effect. And the person who uh, observes it and brings it into uh, impact in all that he's doing is said to be fulfilling it. So in Jewish ears, this would be understood as I don't want you to think in any way that I've come to undermine or diminish or to loosen in any sense the law and the prophets. I came to bring it into full operation. Now, Christian theology says Jesus came to fulfill it as if that's done. I paid that bill off. Now I'll go pay this bill off. Now I'll go pay this bill off. So that bill not there anymore. That is not what Jesus is saying. And he makes it clear he's not saying that. Because he says, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Two things have to be done before this Torah will be completed. One is, the present heaven and earth have to pass away. And that won't happen until after the Messianic Kingdom. And he says, it has to all be fulfilled. So I want to give you two points. Until then, he says, not the smallest letter, or even a part of a letter... The jot on the letter will, will pass until it's all fulfilled. So we all know because we came here today that the present heaven and earth is still here. So that part hasn't been done. And we know more than other congregations that, that Jesus hasn't fulfilled everything in the Torah. Because on the day of atonement the high priest goes in and presents his blood in the, in the most holy place... And then he comes out and he cleanses the temple and uh, does the, the removal of the goat to Azazel. And the book of Hebrews and other passages make it very clear that Jesus entered into heaven with his own blood... Presented it there and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so he still has to fulfill the rest of what the Day of Atonement is. So neither of these conditions has been met. That means that the Torah, the Torah for Israel, is in, is in full binding operation. And while they can't do the things related to the temple, because there is no temple... They can't do the things that they can do, and that's what Jesus is telling them. He is not coming to give them a way out of the covenant. He's trying to bring the covenant into fullness, which is what the new covenant is all about. Now, verse 20 is a, is a, a difficult verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, two things about that. One, he's about to explain the surpassing of the righteousness of the Pharisees in the next few verses, so I'll wait till we do those. But there is a righteousness that is superior To the righteousness of performance. And in some sense is the basis of appropriate performance. And that is the righteousness of faith. Paul talks about this in several passages. He talks about the righteousness of God which comes by faith. We read that earlier in our liturgy. He says that Abraham believed God Uh, as Genesis says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So there's a righteousness of obedience and a righteousness of faith. It is the righteousness of faith that is the superior righteousness and is the basis of salvation by grace through faith. There is a righteousness of obedience And here he says, those who do the commandments and teach others to do them will be great in the kingdom. And those who don't do them and teach others not to do them will be least in the kingdom. So the faith of righteousness gets us into the kingdom. The faith of obedience our place in the kingdom. And he says to these people that unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't even enter the kingdom. Meaning that other faith, that faith that the scriptures teach, the faith, uh, right, the righteousness of faith. Um, but it's important to understand that the Pharisees and the scribes gave the appearance of great righteousness because their appearance was an external conformity. Not in every case, but in many cases, an external conformity. To the text. To give the appearance to men. That they were obeying. uh, The Lord in these commandments. So he's about to address that. uh, But before we do that. We'll stop the tape. And address this. So. uh, Verse 20. I say to you. Unless your righteousness surpasses. The scribes and the Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's going to begin to talk about Torah commandments and the understanding that the Jews at his time uh, uh, were, were struggling with. So he says, You have heard that it was that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Gehenna. Therefore, when you are presenting your offering uh, at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and present Your offerings. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you are thrown into prison. I tell you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Now, this first section is addressing uh, your righteousness surpassing that of the uh, scribes and Pharisees. So, what is the commandment? You shall not murder. Okay, can I maim? Can I uh, beat him up? Can I uh, do things other than... I didn't murder him. You see this kind of legalistic approach? What begins to happen when people start looking at rules... Is we we immediately, it's part of our nature... So how close can I get before I'm in trouble, right? What's the minimum? Students always say, is this going to be on the test? Because there's no point in learning it if it's not going to be on the test, right? Uh, That kind of thing. So there's that, that human nature. And that had become part of the discussions within the Pharisees and the scribes. Are you violating the commandment if you do this? Yes, but if you do this, you're not violating it. So what Jesus is saying is, I want you to understand that the righteousness that I'm talking about is not a righteousness of appearance. It's not a righteousness of the letter of the law. It's a righteousness from the heart. And it, it begins with you being angry at your brother. Or knowing... That your brother is upset with you. But you're going to go on and praise God anyway. With your offerings. So he says. I want you to understand. That you are to deal with that anger. Towards your brother. You are to deal with those unreconciled relationships. And you want to do it. Before the other person decides. They're going to take you to court. Because if they take you to court. There's not going to be any mercy in that. And you're going to pay the whole thing. So, two things. He says, you're bringing your offering. You know you've got a problem with someone. Go fix that and then come back. Because the unity and the love and the obedience is better than sacrifice. And this would have echoed to uh, the Jewish people because they know those those biblical texts. Um, Then he says... You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, this is a married woman, with lust uh, uh, for her, has already committed adultery uh, in his heart. Again, the idea he's talking about shows up in the book of James. We are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lusts. And our lust then conceive a plan, and when the plan is executed, that's sin, and that leads to death. Jesus is basically saying, you have to nip this stuff in the bud because it's an internal battle, not just an external appearance battle. And so he says that if you look at this man's wife and you want to have her, you are going to move towards doing damage to that man's marriage. So he's not saying this is equal to having done the adultery. He's saying you're on the road and you need to stop it. And that's the point there. So now he gives the principle. If your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body... Than your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. If your right hand makes you stumble... Cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Now, the principle here, the point is, if there is something that causes you to move in the direction of disobedience and sin, you need to deal with that, even if it means being impaired from some things that you could do. Because it is better to be impaired in this life and whole in the life to come than to lose it in this life and lose out on the life to come. Uh, So, let's uh, stop the...